0: It was Samaya who taught me to slink into the kitchen at noon to mix powdered milk with sugar and then to creep away with a fistful of the delightful mix. It was Samaya who warned me against ever admitting that I hadn't memorized the poems we were supposed to learn for our class in oral recitation. It was Samaya who taught me to always take a seat at the very end of the very last row so that I could memorize the lesson by listening to all the other girls who had to recite it before I did. Samaya tutored me on how to say, I love you to the blonde son of the English teacher. At home, Samaya got me to put on a performance, insisting that I really did need an increase in my allowance in order to buy colored pencils for drawing class so that she could take the money and buy Mustafa Qamr's latest cassette tapes. Together, we glued the chicken feathers onto Sufyan's back and pretended we were going to throw him from the top of the wall so that we could see him fly. All because we wanted our mother to see us and to be so frightened that she would actually dash across the courtyard without putting her shoes on first. So Maya shouted, Look at elegant lady merchant's daughter running barefoot in the dirt. We tossed Sufyan into my father's arms, and then my father chased us with a whip. We had a lot of confidence in life, now I would add under my breath, more than we should have had confidence in our youth, our pleasures the paths we were taking, our house and home, confidence that the word broken did not exist. We walked through the streets hand in hand as if our interlaced fingers could be undone by nothing short of death. And death was a mere shadow, a remote thing that somewhere out there. There was no cause to dent our happiness by thinking about it. The house was ours. It never crossed our minds that there could be any possibility of losing it sofas and beds and pillows and windows and doorknobs and the sony cassette player and school bags it all belonged to us we didn't feel a moment's uncertainty about anything to press our cheeks down against the old carpet in the sitting room in an attempt to imagine the kings of the gin perched on the chandeliers above that was what happiness meant
1: Welcome to episode 84 of the Bulak podcast. Reading to you just now was my co-host, Marsha Lingsqueli in Rabat, and I'm Ursula Lindsay in Amman. And uh, Marsha was reading from the book Bitter Orange Tree by the Omani writer Jocha al translated by Marilyn Booth and forthcoming from Catapult. Uh, as you heard, a beautiful reminiscence of childhood, uh, in Oman in this book that explores many other different times and, and places. Uh, and, um, Jocha Al-Harthi, uh, is now possibly the most known Omani writer on the world stage, wouldn't you say, Marsha? I mean, at least yeah, for Western readers.
0: Yeah, probably. I mean, yes, definitely. Jochel Hardi is the best known, globally best known Omani writer. Um, from, from a, a a country where very few writers were known on a global stage or even um, a regional stage as well. I believe this year is the first year that an Omani writer is shortlisted for the International Prize for Arabic Fiction, and that's Bushra Khalfan, um, uh, who who is you know who is a writer. When when I asked uh, Jochel Hardi a- after she won the Booker International, which other Omani writers she recommended, um, Bushra was, was one of those on the list. So, you know, clearly, simply the fact that al Haradi was recently um, discovered sort of globally doesn't mean, and that Omani writing generally is, is now coming onto a larger stage doesn't mean that it was not um, in existence before. Sure, of course. Um, but Al
1: Harthi is um, an author. She uh, is a professor of Arabic literature at Sultan Qaboos University. Um, she studied Arabic literature at Edinburgh University, um, which is where she met her translator, uh, Marilyn Booth, who actually uh, came in as the supervisor, I think, of her thesis. And uh, Al Harthi has said, um, in an interview with The Guardian, that as a graduate student uh, living in Edinburgh, I think uh, as a, also uh, a young mother, um, she was homesick uh, for her language and her country. And that uh, the book came partly out of this homesickness, this this desire to sort of sit down and write and remember uh, in arabic and 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 create and um so she wrote the book uh, celestial bodies under those circumstances and then uh, shared it with Booth who was so enthusiastic uh, that she translated it before even having a publisher uh, lined up and uh, and then this book went on to win um, the Man Booker International Prize uh, in 2019, uh, and uh, and and really be very very widely and positively uh, celebrated um, as a as a quite unique uh, contribution.
0: Yeah, I think generally that's how Marilyn works. She finds something that she's passionate about. She translates it, and she worries about the publisher later. And uh, she's told me in the past that she has a number of. Drawer, drawer translations sitting around of books that she was passionate about and did never find um, a publisher for. And she she did have she did work quite hard to find this publisher um, for Celestial Bodies. Although obviously she did not have to work for Narinja Bitter Orange Tree to find a publisher after Joha won the um, the Man Booker International. Um, yeah she she said that she was somewhat reluctant to translate this first one because she was not familiar with Oman or um, or she what she called its intimate language um, but she she enjoyed the novel and um she was sort of encouraged to do it by others around her and 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 Jocha. Also, you know, she said she called her a great partner in in the translation, helping her understand culturally the things that she and linguistically the things that she didn't understand. So um,
1: before we get into the new book, um, for, for those who haven't read Celestial Bodies, um, her sort of breakthrough uh, previous book, it is a multi-generational saga, uh, told in multiple voices that traces, uh, the history of a family, the history of several marriages, and of course, the modern history of Oman.
0: Right. And it's, it's centered around three sisters, Maya, Asma, and Khawla, and, uh, and, and desire and falling in love and raising children and the and great shifts and changes happening in Oman. And, and particularly, I think it, it, it was, it's part of a number of novels, uh, a small number of novels, but, but some that are, that grapple with Oman's uh, history of, of colonialism and, and enslavement uh, in, in Zanzibar and the lives of, of people who came from Zanzibar in, uh, and moved to to Oman and the kind of ongoing the the, the long tail of of slavery in in, uh, in Oman.
1: Right, it has a main character, right, who is a woman who has who came to Oman as a slave. She is, I think, eventually emancipated, but she is the mistress and surrogate mother of of one of the characters, and a very complicated character in her sort of social status and the freedom that she carves out for herself. Um, uh, Right.
0: And and also the money that people earn in that book, the sort of the wealthier people, some, it does come from guns and, and in the slave trade. Um, So even, you, you know, it's sort of, I think, you know, the more you peel away, the, the more the roots of, of, the slave trade and the relationship between Oman and Zanzibar is puts roots down into many of the characters.
1: And and we should say, I mean, I feel like Oman is sort of one of the the lesser known countries in the region. It's sort of a quiet country in the region. Um, I certainly didn't know much about it. I actually visited it for the first time. Uh, Recently, and it's absolutely gorgeous. It's just a Mm. beautiful (laughs) place physically, and it has a very different atmosphere from other countries in the Gulf. uh, Because although it does have some oil wealth uh, and 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 an infrastructure that's been built out of that quite recently, it's not at all as sort of like frenetic and developed as as say the Emirates. but the but the history of Oman, I mean, so Oman is on the southeastern coast of the Arabian Peninsula, it borders Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Yemen. Um, it has uh, it, it is Muslim, but Ibadi Muslim, which is a school of Islam that's sort of minority within the Muslim world. It's the only majority Ibadi Muslim country in the in in the region, uh, uh, and that and Zanzibar, and um, and it was a maritime trading empire. Uh, that you know extended all the way its influence to like Iran and Pakistan and, and East Africa and Zanzibar um, and was then also occupied by the Portuguese uh, you know went through a colonial period with the British um, went through several wars that were mostly triggered by the discovery of oil um, to subjugate a sort of independent interior province of the country and then also to put down a, a leftist rebellion in the 70s six, from 65 to 75 we've we've actually talked about one other book that deals with Oman uh, which is warda the book by by sonali mm-hmm. ibrahim which is about this Dofar rebellion in oman uh, this sort of forgotten chapter of its history um but so it's very culturally mixed right it has all these different influences right um, right
0: I mean, I, so I read something that called it as a sort of part of triangular trade, which I found very interesting since so many of the relationships in the novel that we'll talk about are also triangles. So, uh, yeah, as being a part of a triangle with, you know, Zanzibar and, um, and East Africa, um, and India, Pakistan, Iran, um, it being part of that triangle of trade. Huh. And and then the,
1: the, the, the book, um, bitter orange tree, the, the earlier parts of it are set, uh, during the reign of Sultan Said bin Taimur, which is from the thirties to the 1970, which is a time. And his rule is sort of generally described as like very conservative and sort of isolationist. Um, he was, uh, uh, propped up by the british um but like very socially conservative like for example there weren't there were hardly any roads there were hardly any schools um at one point in this book they talk about the need to you know, to apply personally to the sultan for a passport right um, right so, so there was like a lot of sort of limits on people's mobility and then after 1970 uh his the sultan kabus instituted this huge modernization drive. And, and now, you know, the, the literacy rates are like in the upper 90%. And, and, and like I said, there's a very modern infrastructure. And so it's a country that's really like changed overnight in a lot of ways. I think that's also something that her books um, deal with are these like huge uh, shifts in, in lifestyle, in education, and the things that change and the things that don't, I mean, because right, because it's right. not always, sort of always a straightforward, uh, uh, you know, linear progression in one direction or another,
0: right? And in, in fact, so what I really loved most about this book, among many things, um, and I I must say that I'm I find this book much more sort of significant artistically than than I found Celestial Bodies, which I also enjoyed a lot. Um, but that that it's um structured backwards in this way as a kind of um against the grain of say uh an, a novel that that posits a main character who goes from east to west and you know sort of discovers themselves in Europe the uk etc um instead it's structured backwards and we understand not just the character but the the context around her um oman uh zanzibar uh even pakistan uh, through seeing the characters backwards we begin in in london where she's studying for toward her phd um and she's remembering this woman who's her grandmother who's not her grandmother but <laughs> who who played the role of grandmother in her life and this sort of point of deep regret, which is the entry point, uh, for, for her and her relationship with this woman. And then from there, we, we move, uh, not sort of linearly ever, uh, backwards, you know, in, um, like Martin Amis novel, but, um, but we sort of peel, we, continue to exist in the present as she's studying toward her PhD in London. Um, But she sort of understands herself, understands others, understands her country um, and particularly understands her grandmother uh, or this grandmother character, Ma, by moving backwards through, through time.
1: Yeah. So, so the novel's opening point is, is her, is the narrator Remembering her grandmother's hands and nails, and then one particular deformed, injured black nail on her hand, mm-hmm. which I think is such an interesting place to start. Um, with this, with this image that's, that, that has an element of repulsion, and then immediately followed by this uh, element of regret, regret over, over, not paying enough attention to the grandmother. um, And, you know, the language, she says, I toss and turn in an agony of regret. It was the remorse, the guilt that choked me, neglect, negligence, looking the other way, pretending not to notice, ignoring it. And obviously she's not just talking about a nail on a hand. I mean, she's talking about this woman that she left, that she left in her old age and in her illness to go off and pursue her, her own life as a young person and her education. Um, and, and that the book, you know, continues to return to again and again. Um, and as you say, she's not, I mean, she she is to all effects and purposes her grandmother, but she is in fact a, a orphan, you know, <laughs> Orphaned, orphaned. I suppose is orphaned, rejected, <laughs>
0: rejected I mean, by her, right? Her by her by her father and a stepmother, right? right? So that she has to go out and make her own life. I think it was at thirteen. Her brother was, I think, fifteen, when they were thrown out um, of of that family,
1: and who then ends up in the narrator's family. Um, as first a surrogate mother to her own father and then a, sur- a surrogate grandmother to, to all the children um, who is sort of taken in by this, by the family. But um, as she says, more than once, who spends her whole life owning nothing, having nothing of her own and like kind of living to prove her usefulness to this family and. Um, out of also pride, out of not wanting to be a beggar or a guest or, you know, out of, out of wanting to sort of have a role that's, that gives her dignity. Um, and so she like raises every generation of the family.
0: Right. Right. And, and the, uh, I, I found one of the wonderful moments, uh, in her character development and i and i thought there were a, a lot of them but the the jealousy she felt for these returnees raya and raya um who came back from from zanzibar in to oman and it's it's not clear when there aren't uh, dates given but um but so if we say sort of generally it was Almost, it was 1698 when uh, Oman seized control of Zanzibar from the Portuguese, and there was a sort of plantation economy based around the enslavement of the local Bantu population. Then the country became a British protectorate in 1890, but it's apparent that many Omanis continued to move there, particularly when times were difficult in Oman. And they continued to, um, even it it seems clear from, from this novel and from other accounts that, that even when slavery was illegal, it was sort of de facto enslavement. Um, but then in 1964, Omanis were forced out during the independence movement. Um, and I don't know at what point these two characters, Raya and Raya, um, come back to Oman, but they come back and they also move in to the same family. They are also, they really are orphaned and they, they come back and they establish themselves and there's sort of a competition of, you know, um, sadly, so the, the grandmother figure, she sort of insists on doing everything. So then these, these two characters, Raya and Raya, who are also deformed. And and one I think has a humpback and one is maybe just nearsighted, which doesn't seem like that much of a deformity, but um, they, uh, they are able to, because she insists on doing the work in the household, um, I think they, they do people's fasts um, for for money if people want to pay somebody to fast on their behalf. And they also do some sewing and some other things. And eventually they save an, up enough money to become independent. Um, and and this independence, and they, they have their own land and they have their own crops. And this independence was, so not only does the grandmother character sort of never um, achieve Sort of, a, she never has a relationship. She never has um, her, you know, her own children, um, and never has her own house. She also never has this independence that she um, sort of resents. These these two women who return from from Zanzibar for for gaining. I mean the The scene in which she first meets them
1: and decides instantly, as the narrator says, "This was war." Yeah, it, it was one of these many scenes in which uh, so much is conveyed, uh, so much is evoked into short, concentrated scenes. That's one of the things about her writing that strikes me as like really remarkable: is how much she can somehow gracefully pack into like one paragraph one scene like it it will give you the kind of it'll cut right to the quick of like a character or a relationship or an emotion and but remain complex somehow I mean it doesn't get simplified but it's it and yet it, it evokes so much so directly with the sort of sort of ease you know um, I mean she meets these two girls in the hallway, she takes one look at them. In fact, she's seen their shoes by the doorway before right, already. Close. She's sort of yeah. she's she's already suspicious and 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 this was war. And somehow the scene immediately conveys uh so much and, and she has many scenes like that. Um because the book is um so it alternates. So the, the narrator, like you said, the narrator is a student in in the UK, and there are these reminiscences about her family, but then it moves in time and in point of view and t- towards different characters. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of sort of motion to the story. And so it will, it branches off again and again into, you know, the, the story of these two orphaned girls who arrive or, you know, the, the, the discovery much later in the book of the woman who the narrator's father first loved before he right. married the mother. Yes. Um, and, and each time it does that you slip into suddenly you encounter like a new character and a new point of view. And every time, again, it's conveyed with this like level of like depth and power and succinctness somehow, um, so that you, they sort of sprout there suddenly alive in front of
0: you, um, and uh, it, it's very impressive. Yeah, and continually to me enriching our understanding of each of these characters. So her sister Samaya, who we we opened with a reading about uh-huh. their their childhood, one of the m- most striking, and I think. M- one of the the passages that stayed with me of these really short intense chapters was her sister Samaya's marriage to I can't remember her husband's name and I don't I don't want to either um I'm uh, not this, sure he's even uh, ever named may, maybe he never is yeah so this this uh how she was so vibrant and the and this this abusive relationship, the intensely abusive, um, frightening relationship that she just she the the narrative just hurls you into uh, from the from the moment of their honeymoon. But right. then, late it's later in the novel when we see Samaya seeing this handsome young man who's just come back, I think, from Australia with with a degree, and wanting to start her new life with him. So this is, but this is after we've already seen how, how dreadful how it, it turns end. out. Yeah.
1: Well, for that matter, we've already seen how badly it will turn out before we get that childhood reminiscence that you read at right. the beginning. Right. Um, and I would like to read a little bit from this chapter, which, which also tricks you by its title. It's called A Day Trip. Right, um, right. And suddenly it throws you into, let me see if I, so... <clears throat> When Sumaya's husband announced that tomorrow they would make a day trip to the ancient mountainside village and gardens of Misfat al-Abri'in, he had not asked her beforehand what she thought of the idea or even told her in advance that they were going. The only reason he was telling her now was so that she would know to get herself ready. They had been married only a few weeks when Sumaya realized that there was never going to be any real conversation between the two of them. Her husband was to be the center around which everything had to pivot. Anything on the margins of his world, he was unable to see or hear or think about. Anything outside of his own self, he considered utterly peripheral, a distant sight, remote from the focus of his concerns. Very soon indeed after the wedding, Sumaya saw clearly that she was one of those distant sights. The next morning, Sumaya made sandwiches and filled a thermos with milky tea, She put on a long blue tunic over jeans. Before she could wrap her Sheila around her head, her husband clapped his hands on either side of her face and squeezed it hard between his palms. Sumaya did not make a sound. He laughed. My strong little sweetie, he said. My pretty doll. She waited until he removed his hands and then she silently resumed getting dressed. She got into the car and waited for him. It was a fresh, brisk morning towards the end of February. Her husband was in a good mood. On the way, he hummed a few of Salim al old tunes, and he reminisced about his time as a student in Australia. Chuckling, he described the bodies of the girls who used to fight for the privilege of devoting themselves to him. Even as the morning advanced, the freshness remained in the air. Sumaya closed her eyes, hearing what she thought was a sweet, melodic chirping of birds. He gripped her shoulder and gave it a hard shake. Her eyelids flew open. Don't go off to sleep and leave me all alone, he barked. I didn't get married and lose my freedom just for the sake of a dumb statuette who has nothing to say. I'll stop there. But it goes on, and the intimations that are so strong... Of what this relationship is and of the fact that he is terrifying her, that he is not understanding her and terrifying her, will then become evident in the interaction that they have. This image of him needing to be the center at all times and basically being furious when she ever, when her attention ever wanders from him.
0: Right. If she has any interiority at all, any anything that he can't access immediately. It's interesting because I, I, I certainly... Of all the characters in the book, he is maybe the one that I don't, (laughs) I don't, I don't find any sympathy for him. I don't, I don't care about his inner reality or whatever makes him tick, but I found him to be so powerfully real and the way in which he inhabits the space and steals the the power and the joy from her life. uh, Uh... just took the breath out of me. Right. I mean, there are a
1: few other figures. So in the, in the contemporary story that the narrator is telling, she enters into a sort of strange love triangle, unrealized love triangle with the, with this, with this friend of hers and this sort of uh, young man who would be considered inappropriate by the friend's family. And they are having a extremely passionate, secretive relationship. And that young man, like in yet another sort of one of these sudden little backdrops, he has a terribly abusive childhood. And that again is conveyed in like a couple, a couple terrifying pages, right? Right, Um, right. Okay. So yes, his father also. (laughs) There's an economy to these things, but they are done so well. And, And then like you say, there's, there's, there's a number of male characters, um, who do have, a, a, an interior life who are rendered sympathetically, um, uh, including the narrator's father, um, the narrator, I mean, this young man that the narrator is, is, is as interested in as her friend is, um, several others. In fact, one of the other very interesting things that El does, I think, because so much of her work does sort of focus on the, the relationship between men and women, but is that her, her male characters are, are she, she inhabits their interiority just as well as the female characters. I mean, there's a, uh, uh, the, she looks at the relationships from both sides.
0: Yeah. Um, I found it, I found it wonderful that we knew her father, you know, as her father. And then it was relatively late in the book when we learn about, um, you know, his, his great love story. And I, I must admit that at first I, I was sort of foolish enough to believe that maybe the great love, his great love story was with her depressive mother. And that somehow that had but no, it was, it's with a woman who he met earlier in his life. And, um, and, that, that triangle love triangle between this woman, Kafa, who he falls in love with in this gigantic way, but never also never sort of checks how she feels about him, which it turns out is fairly indifferent. And this, and this woman's father, who also is Hi. extremely passionate about her um right
1: right we get the we get what's interesting with that story is it starts out and you get the the point of view of the smitten young man right mm. this like extremely romantic sort of passionate uh upheaval on his part and and then you get the point of view of the woman and she is like not that comfortable with his (laughs) worship of her. It's not even, and he's, he's in love. He's well-intentioned. He's, you know, but it just doesn't work for her. She's both kind of bored and made uncomfortable by this, this, this adulation and having all her needs sort of met. I mean, there's just some lack of connection and for her lack of freedom, um, and, and nostalgia for her own life uh she, you know for her her bedouin life and uh, out in the open um and then you do get again out of out of kind of as out of nowhere this incredible chapter that opens from the point of view of her father
0: mm. do you want to read that do you want to read the first page oh, of that oh, i don't i don't have it open do you have
1: it open oh uh, i do okay um, so it's called, it's called Pardoning. The father could not find any way to accept what his daughter, Kafa, had done. How could he forgive her for going away, going to the home of another man? True, that other man had done everything properly. He came with his relatives. They spoke long and proudly and well. They drank coffee together. He made his offer of a dowry. And they held a ceremony. But then, what she did, she went away. Or rather, she left him, him, in his weakness, his need, his tenderness. She left him, this woman who was the closest woman to his heart, the most precious of any to his soul. She left him, and the only reason she left was to go to that other man, that stranger to them who wanted her so much. Who wanted children by her and who wanted it to be said, that man has started a household now. And so she left him, her own father, a man who had no wants, no great ambitions, who loved her more than he loved his wife or all his sisters, daughters, she-camels and livestock. She (laughs) left him voluntarily. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. She left him voluntarily, happily, finely dressed and adorned for the other man, the stranger, the man from the village, the man of settled life, the Hadari.
0: Right. And it's so wonderful that when she comes back to him, he celebrates as if it's his own wedding, you know, she's returning right. to him.
1: And daughter. I should say that there is no connotation that this rela- like to a Western audience that, that this relationship is like inappropriate. Like that Uh, that there's some, that there's some sort of like, uh, something wrong in, in, you know, some, something fishy going on here between him and his daughter. That's not it. It is such a sincere description, I think, of the kind of betrayal that a, a father will feel at the loss of his daughter in, in this sort of a setting. Um, and, yeah, he, and then he goes on to say, like, he won't know how to take care of her. He doesn't know what to give her when she's sick. He doesn't know like mm-hmm. you need to cover her feet in the winter. And also, like in his own household, he's like lost his his sort of ally, his support, you know? Um, he, he gets along better with her than he does with his second wife. Like, um and, and yes, they are reunited and she and she sort of dares to to present the idea that like their love for each other is is a much is the love of their life rather than their romantic relationships,
0: right although I felt I was never entirely sure what um Kaffa thought of it, uh, of that either because so uh, as her father is failing in his health he's he has to go into adult diapers and he's sort of mortified that his his second wife is taking care of him. And so he divorces her and throws her out of the house. And then in no, the end, he doesn't his, throw her out of the house. Oh, she goes sorry. and lives she, in the compound. She goes and lives, right. She lives farther away from him. She no longer is washing him and taking care of him. And it's his daughter who, who takes care of him instead. And, and then it says something like, and then after he died, she went away and no more was heard from her. Um, uh, I, I just I just thought that, that she was disappears so, she disappears, so she's wonderful
1: uh she steps right out of the frame, she completely mm-hmm. flees um but when she is introduced as a character when he falls in love with her in the description of her, it says there was one love in her life, her father. Right, right. Okay. When, it, when it's describing her. I mean,
0: right. and also, but her life, her, right, her loves, uh, as you sort of observed before, so the it's the men's love that are so big and so sort of written in the sky and are pushing the other characters around, whereas women's loves are so much more interior and imaginary. And even, you know, in the case of Zuhur, who the the narrator of the novel, um, doesn't have any effect outside of her own head. Right.
1: She sort of inserts herself imaginatively into this romantic relationship that she's observing between these two other people. I mean, she seems to fall for him, but also in a way she's falling for the whole idea of them being in love. Um, I do think, yes, the the men... I mean, the way I sort of thought of it is I felt like the, the men... Can afford to sort of fall in love in these stories. Like they get to have the luxury of like being smitten and insisting on marrying a particular person. Um, the women are more like the, it's like they undergo the love of the men and, and, and have to decide what to make of it, you know? And, and are sort of more hard-headed, like they're more trying to figure out what would make them happy and and how can they have a certain level of independence and how much choice do they actually have in life? Um,
0: Although Zuhur does, I think, have a great desire inside of her. She never lets it, you know, sort of, it, it, she never lets it escape or, or even anyone to find out about it. Um, and the the woman who does, Koh, who does um, sort of live her, who, she's not Omani, she's a Pakistani student, also in London, who has a secret marriage to Imran, who her parents would find inappropriate and her sister is sort of mortified by because he's a, he's a peasant. Um, it, it she, she does, but, um, that, you, you know, there are great, there are huge consequences to her expressing that she's, that she has right. this great love.
1: Well, she never, I mean, as far as I can tell, she, it's not resolved, but it seems very unlikely. She is not going to stand up to her family and make the relationship public despite being right. head over heels yes. in love. Like right. Right. it, despite sort of what is the, there's this beautiful image where she she sort of says her, her soul is stuck between the buttons of his shirt or something in the folds of his shirt. Um, uh, yeah. I mean this, that comes up again and again too, is, is sort of how, how free people really are to make their own destiny. Um, and going back to the grandmother who, you know, is, is, has to sort of make the best of the worst again and again. Um, you know, loses the sight in her eye. Um, you know, never fulfills this dream of like owning anything. Um, is, is, is sort of abandoned by all the, 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 the people in the family, uh, in her, in her final years. Like they just don't want to spend any time with her or be near her. And, you know, is unable to sort of forge. Although she's this incredibly strong and sympathetic and 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 dignified character, like is is unable to forge a life of her own
0: choosing at all. Right. Well, it's I, it's interesting for you know during her her time in London, the narrators uh, where she's there as a PhD student. British people are are very peripheral to that, but there is one British, I think it's Christine, maybe who, um, who are there having a talk about motherhood and parents and, and family expectations. And Christine's tries to insert herself, um, into this space saying something like, well, I would never, um, force my children to do anything they didn't want to do. And they, <laughs> and, um, I'm not sure if it's her, uh, but they just dismiss her like, yeah, yeah, yada, yada. Yes, you would have expectations for your child next, <laughs> next year. This, uh, her sort of this, these few, uh, which who I thought were very well rendered, um, British characters, um, you know, sort of insisting, oh, we're all free. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh I mean I think I think it's clear as
1: we're as we're discussing and novel because we keep bringing up so many different scenes and different characters and it can sound I maybe to someone who hasn't read it sort of chaotic but that's what's so formally impressive about mm-hmm. it is that um you have the sort of free floating of a consciousness right of the narrator's consciousness who keeps like moving back and forth in time and then there are stories told that, that are that cannot even i mean and then it goes out of the narrator because like the narrator was not there on the day where her sister and her husband went on the car trip and he you know hit her. Like there are right. stories told so that, that sort of you move out of her consciousness and even further afield into sort of like the authorial insight into, into other characters, but they're always connected th- through this, through these, these threads. Um, and I think that balance that she has between like the fluidity of it and still maintaining, a, a, the, the narrative control is, is very impressive. Um, the shifts in in time and the shifts in point of view, and yet how it all manages to hold together.
0: Um, right? I think because each one of these tiny chapters is so powerful in the small story that it tells. Um, yeah, you never lose yourself in, in space or time or, or in the, or in the, trajectories of these characters you know but when i finally when we finally much later see samaya hopeful and expectant about this you know new this fiance um from who's just come back from australia with a degree um you, you know you sort of haven't for a moment lost all you knew before about samaya about her childhood about her as this dynamo and then later uh, her is this broken person in a, a terribly mm. abusive relationship. Um, y- yes. These, all these pieces, um, these, these small layers that she uses to build up this world. Um, I, I never felt, never felt lost in them, even though it ranges over so much. She she invests a lot of time also in Imran and his, um, Childhood, not, maybe not a lot of time, but I invested a lot of emotional energy in Imran and his childhood in in a village in in Pakistan.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's not even uh it's not as like big and big of a book as Celestial Bodies is in terms of actual length. Um, so mm-hmm. it's it's even more kind of like concentrated. Um, I was going to say, James Wood wrote a review of Celestial Bodies for the New Yorker that was glowing. And the, the final paragraph in it, I think, is, is a pretty good summary of all the, the things that she's accomplishing as a writer. And it says, um, the ability to move freely through time, the privileged access to the wounded privacies of many characters, the striking diversity of human beings across a relatively narrow canvas, the shockwaves as one generation heaves like tectonic plates against another. The secrets and lapses and repressions at once intimate and historical. The power indeed of an investigation that is always political and always intimate. Here is the novel being supremely itself, proving itself up to the job by changing not its terms of employment, but the shape of the task.
0: Mm. Yeah, I did feel that this was less a novel of generational difference than Celestial Bodies was. Although, of course, it spans several generations. I didn't see um, uh, uh, the characters... Dealing with the world in a fundamentally different way from generation to generation, or in that being a, the site of contest that it was mm. in, say, that al Qamar. Um, and- yeah, but it's true that the
1: sensibility doesn't seem that. If anything, it's kind of a, it's kind of looking for connections. It's sort mm-hmm. of going back into the past to illuminate the present um right as opposed to emphasizing sort of essential uh breaking points or, right. or or conflicts
0: right yeah and and one thing that i wrote down several times while writing it was uh you know our lives must be understood backwards not forwards i just was um, so in love with how how my un- i guess that final moment which i won't spoil for anyone else lest they want to read the novel and experience themselves. But, um, uh, of, of, you know, both narrowing in on one space and then feeling like I just see, I just caught a glimpse of the entire universe. Mm. Yeah. The, the different points in time sort of keep on
1: speaking to each other and, and, and enriching each other.
0: Absolutely. And one thing I would like to say about uh, Marilyn's translation is something she had said. uh, I haven't asked her about the translation of this novel, but I had asked her about her translation of Celestial Bodies. um, And she had, she talked about how important rhythm and rhyme were there. And, and I just loved how she left so many of sort of little songs and childhood rhymes and chants in, in the Arabic and then translated them after. So we get the, the, the rhythmic quality of, of some pieces of, of people chanting or rhyming things. Mm. And I just thought in general it's absolutely gorgeous translation and such a lovely partnership between uh, Jukhah and Marilyn.
1: Yeah. It reads, it reads, it reads beautifully. It really does. Um, well, I think we can maybe wrap this up here. We don't want to, we don't want to give away more of the plot or of the sort of power kind of of some of the, the scenes in this book. So people should, should read it for themselves really. Yes,
0: definitely. Please do you, um, if you, if you like books, we recommend this one. (laughs) It was great
1: talking with you as always, and uh, talk to you again soon. Bye.